Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books, Terrorism and Organised Crime on the New Books Network. I'm your host Mark Locks, talking to you from Brisbane in Australia. Tonight we're talking to Federico Varese about his new book, Mafias on the Move, How Organised Crime Conquers New Territory. This is an excellent scholarly book about how organised crime groups move from their original traditional territory to new places in the world. Uh, we always hear about these sort of things happening, and certainly in Australia, we have a lot of scare campaigns in the media about Russian mafia and Yakuza coming to our locale. But as Federico studies this area in detail, he finds that it's actually extremely difficult for these sorts of groups to move to a new geographic location or a new culture, because it's very hard for them to establish themselves without their traditional links in the community. Also, he finds that uh, they very rarely move of their own accord, and often it's an involuntary shift. Uh, I found this a quite a fascinating book. Um, certainly changed a lot of my views about how organized crime groups work in the world. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome to a, another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. And tonight we're talking to Federico Varese about his new book, uh, Mafias on the Move. So, Federico, how are you? Very well, thanks. That's good, that's good. Um, now, uh, how about you tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book? So what's your background in academia or before academia, and how did it end up with this particular book? Yes, thank you for the question and for the interview. I, I did political science as an undergraduate in Italy, in Bologna, and that was the time when the Soviet Union was coming to an end. So it was right at the time of the one of the major social, economic, and political transformation in, in, in Eastern Europe and in, in Russia. So I was very fascinated by that transformation, and I set myself the task of studying it. And that was the, eventually it led to my first book, which was called The Russian Mafia. So I did uh, ethnographic fieldwork in a city in Russia, in the Ural region of Russia, called Perm. And what I was trying to find out is, the connection between the transition to the market economy and the emergence of organized crime. So that was my, so this is my origin, my intellectual passion, in a sense, trying to connect economic sociology and um, the transition and organized crime, and to what extent organized crime plays a role in the economy, especially in the legal economy. Now, at the end of that work, at the very, very end, when I was about to publish the book, I came across a fascinating... Uh, instance of a Russian mafia group that had migrated to Italy. So it had gone from Moscow to Rome, and there was a trial going on at the time. It was at the very end of my book, so in the, the trial was in the late 90s. And so I decided that that created a problem for my original work, because my original work was how does organized crime emerge in a given society that is undergoing a transition to the market economy. Now, the next problem I put myself is, but why would an organized crime group be able to expand and set up shop in a country which is not 
undergoing a transition to the market economy and what kind of challenges this group would face. So that gave me the question for my second book, which is the one we are talking about today, Mafia on the Move. And then I can tell you more about the book if you want. Yes, yes. Um, you actually cover more than just that one Russian group. In the book, you cover quite a few groups. Yes, yes. So the way I structured the group, uh, the book, uh, is as, as a series of matched comparisons. For every group of origin that I have in the book, I study two instances. In one case, this group has succeeded to expand and become rooted in a new territory, which is far away uh, from from where it originated, and in the other instance, I have uh, a negative case, a case in which the group failed to become rooted. Now, let me, for instance, mention the case of Italy, which is my home country, and in, with, this group, I had the with this book, I had the opportunity to come back and study my own country for once, and in that chapter, that is, again, a much comparison between the two, the two, the two cases, I have a group of origin, the Andrangheta from Calabria, and in one case, they go to northern Italy in the Piedmont region. And in the other case, they try to set up shop in the Veneto region nearby Verona, in the city of Verona, nearby Venice. And so I have the same group of origin, roughly the same period of time, the 60s and 70s and 80s. Obviously, the same country of destination, i.e. northern Italy, where many of the things are in common between regions of the north. And yet, in one case, they succeeded to become entrenched and in the one other case, they failed. So what the book really um, tries to accomplish is to introduce systematic comparisons in the study of organized crime and mafia, which is quite rare in, in the field. Yes, it is. And, and um, as I was saying to you in the pre-interview, I have a student who's just finishing her PhD, and one of the things she has found is work by people like Klaus von Lamp and others who are saying that there is, we don't have that rigor in the field, in organized crime research. People take one case study and then they extrapolate from one rather than doing proper comparisons. So this is one of the really valuable things about your book, I think. Yes, I, I think it, it's a, in a sense it's obvious. You know, if you want to explain something, you must know why that thing happened and why it didn't happen. If you only have a case in which it did happen, you never know why it happened because you don't know why it didn't happen in another similar instance. I mean, the principle of science is to compare cases of success and failure, or positive or negative. I think this is what is called in methodology uh, selection on the dependent variable in, in methodological studies. So, you know, if you only select on cases that occurred, you make a fallacy, a fallacy because you don't know if all the reasons that you think explain why it happened would not also apply to a case where it actually didn't happen. So what I do in the book is try to use this logic of inference in which I have the same aspiration that you have in other social sciences, maybe more quantitative kind of research, in which I have success and failure. And that's what, what the, 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 the book tries to do. And I mean, incidentally, I... I like uh, Van Lampe's work very much. I think he has made that point, as you said, that we should try to, to follow this uh, criteria. Yeah. Like, in well, instance, if you have a book on the Sicilian Mafia, uh, how do you know that, why did the Sicilian Mafia emerge only in Sicily and not in Calabria or in Puglia? So, or in, actually, the Sicilian Mafia emerged only in Western Sicily. So, a study of the, of the origins of the Sicilian Mafia needs to be about the studies of why it didn't emerge in the other part of the island. Yes, I've got a, a colleague who does life course criminality and she found all these people studying 
children who committed crimes and then continue to commit crimes. So she's now studying what the good kids do, the kids who never yes. committed crimes, to do a comparison. So I think it's really, really worthwhile. So um, tell us what you actually found in these cases in Piedmont and Verona. Yes, excellent. So um, what I do in the book is to go through it, a number of factors that have been uh, invoked to explain the transplantation of organized crime and mafia groups. I, I study mafia groups in particular, by which I, de which I define as groups that try to govern uh, a, a given territory and control activities in that territory. So the, the Andrangheta fits under that definition. So what did I find in the case of, uh, of the Italian story? I start off by looking at migration. Migrations of uh, individuals, uh, ordinary people who migrated to the north of Italy or to the center of Italy, uh, in order to find jobs in the 50s and 60s in Italy, there was massive migration to the north of Italy. And I find that there are similar patterns of southern and south migration to the north and even Calabrese migration to the north in several parts of the north and the center of Italy. However, not everywhere the mafia became entrenched. For instance, the pattern of migration to Rome were as big as the ones to Piedmont, and yet there was no Calabrese Andrangheta in Rome who became um, rooted. So, I use the, so migration is obviously a factor, but in itself does not explain the success. Then I study a specific policy that Italy had, which could be thought to be rather silly in now, namely forced resettlement of people condemned for mafia crime. This is called Soggiorno Brigato in, in Italian. So the, the story was that you could be fined or forced to resign outside of your own territory if found to be guilty of mafia crimes, which obviously it's a great uh, element to, to spread the mafia. You know, it's a great uh, factor that would spread the mafia. But yet, so I had all the data on where these people had been forced to resettle in the north of Italy. And yet again, I find that not everywhere there, were, there was a sizable number of these people, a mafia emerged. And as you recall in the chapter, I've got data also for Piedmont and for Veneto region. And again, there is a province in Piedmont called Asti, which had even more people forced to resettle there, and there was no mafia emerging. So I go through all these factors, and then I conclude that really what matters is that given that these factors are important and have to be there, the local conditions, the local situation really explains why success took place in one case and not in the other. And now I can tell you more about that if you want. Yes, yes, definitely. So the, the, what happened in this uh, Piedmont story, which is a little town, really, a valley outside Turin, is that something very special was going on in the local economy at the time. And that's the key factor that explains success, I argue, in the book. Namely, there was a massive boom, a massive expansion in construction. There, was, there were second homes being built. This was a very uh, posh and very wealthy part of the country where people would go skiing. Now, the local entrepreneurs wanted to corner that market, did not want competition to come in from outside, yet they did not have enough workforce to work on their construction sites. And so what they do is they enlist the services of the local mafioso who had actually migrated to the town through the Soggiorno Brigato policy. However, he was just standing around and doing not very much. He was involved in petty crime, but at that point, Finally, he can do what he's best at, i.e. being a mafioso, organizing and governing a territory. So what this man does is to find cheap labor for the construction 
sites of the local in the local valley, and he usually draws upon southerners who had moved to Turin and not found employment in Turin. So he brings them into the valley and makes them to work in the construction sites for a very, very cheap uh, uh, salary and no uh, trade union protection. So it was very informal. And so obviously he controlled them through the use of violence for the interest of the entrepreneurs. And then he does something else. He prevents uh, competition to arise. So whenever there is a new incoming company that wants to come into, he can use violence to protect the market. So just to sum up, what he does is to organize the very profitable uh, labor market, labor racketeering for the local entrepreneurs, as well as enforce a cartel of local um, company, companies that will protect and control the local market. So that, uh, to me, is the key function, the key element that explains success as opposed to failure. In effect, uh, it's a demand for mafia services in a local economy when the state and the local institution have failed to control and govern a major transformation in the local economy. So, in a nutshell, that's my answer. There could be immigrants from the south. There could even be mafiosi from the south in a given territory. But that in itself is not enough for a mafia to become a train. So we shouldn't be panicking over migration from the south of Italy. We shouldn't even be panicking over the presence of the odd mafioso in the territory. What we should worry very much about is the inability of the local institutions and the state structures to govern major transformation of the economy. That's my sort of policy uh, recommendation. Right, right. And then you compare this with other groups from around the world. So you were saying earlier there's the um, Russian group that actually moves to Rome. And you were saying that there was no mafioso in Rome. So the Sicilian mafia did not reappear in Rome. But the Russian group comes to Rome. So what happened in that case? Yes, uh, that case highlights another aspect of, of the story I tell in the book, which is common among all the cases, incidentally, and uh, which I'm going to tell you in a second. Namely, that um, these mafiosi that show up in a different territory, they do not willingly move. So they always end up in the new territory uh, through an unintentional process. It's not that uh, the, the guy I was telling you about before from Calabria who goes to Piedmont uh, chose to go to Piedmont. He was forced to go because of the court order. The story of the Russian mafia is the same. There was a conflict in this uh, very major mafia group from, uh, from uh, Moscow that I described in, in great detail in the book. There was a conflict within the group and so the guy who shows up in Rome is actually on the losing faction of that conflict and so he pulls himself out of the conflict and brings his crew to Rome. When he arrives in Rome, what he mainly does and again, if you read the newspaper from the time, there is a huge scare, the Russian mafia is trying to conquer Rome, and so on and so forth. Really, what he tries to do when in Rome is to uh, offer a service of the mafia back home, namely reinvest massively the proceeds of crime from, from Russia. So that's his activity. He's not trying to, at least at the early stages, to control the territory. And there is also no opportunity for him to do so, because there is no major transformation in the economy, and like the bosses in Piedmont, he doesn't go to uh, central Rome. He's not in Fontana di Trevi, you know, that he sets up shop. He goes to a little town outside Rome, near the country, near the, the coastline. So in both cases, we observe that the mafia chooses small towns where to 
set up shop and start their activities. And so what happens in the Rome case, and I have extensive um, material on that, as you have seen in the book, um, what they do is mainly to reinvest the capital that comes from Russia illegally into, into the Italian economy. And there is a wonderful line that is said by one of these mafiosi on, on the phone. It says, oh, let's move to, to Italy. That is not Europe. So you can do whatever you want in Italy. So it's, <laughs> there is this informality in which Italy is sort of welcoming uh, mafiosi. Yeah, uh, and you also point out that there were some uh, connections with the Russian community because of the, the large communist party. So it wasn't as if they were just Russians moving to Italy with no connections whatsoever. Yes, yes. So the, the Italian Communist Party had uh, a, a group of people who spoke some Russian who had ma- uh, wives mainly who were Russians. And so this guy who comes with his crew to Rome immediately hooked up with these people. So th- these are his local fixers. And these are very well connected to the local bureaucracy. I should say, I should point out that the, these people had also been expelled from the party, and the party had also sized down with the end of the mm. Soviet Union, so they were somehow floating, and uh, so there was no connection between the party and uh, these, yes. uh, yeah. these people who were at that point unemployed, in effect, or being very little, you know, doing small jobs and in being involved in. Uh, travel agency, um, but they used their connection with Russia that they had acquired before to be the local fixer. Now, what is also quite worrying for Italian politics and society is that this group in Rome very, very quickly hooked up with really prominent businessmen and um, politicians. So the somewhat the Italian elite did not did not stop or did not say no when when yeah. approached. And as you can imagine, they had a lot of money these people to yes. invest. Yes. And so, so the uh, economic elite was very quick to take the money and, and invest them and, and sell them um, goods and services. Excellent. Yeah. So really there's two different opportunities. One, we've got a Russian who's going to Rome to try and invest money. And then in the other case, we had a, effectively a poverty-stricken Sicilian in northern Italy who had to look for a completely different op- opportunity. Yes, it's for, he's a Calabrese, not a Sicilian, yes. Oh, sorry, so the, yes, Calabrese. The main, yeah, it's, so, yes, so exactly the theoretical point here is that there is a huge difference between uh, the ability of a group to control a territory, to control a sector of the local economy, especially of the legal economy, it's very, very different from money laundering, ultimately. And uh, they are both crimes, and of course we should both fight these two types of crime, but their effect on the local society is very different. And in the case of the former, the ability of control markets and territory is much more pervasive. And it, then it makes, uh, it also because they enter the, the local economy in a way that money laundering doesn't. So if we have to fight uh, organized crime, we have to be able to distinguish what they do. It's not enough to say, oh, there is transnational organized crime, because within this very vague label, transnational organized crime, different things may be going on. One could be the ability and the willingness to control a territory in a country. The other one is reinvesting money from, uh, from abroad. And so obviously the means to fight the two activities are different. Yep. If we take what the police are actually saying here in Australia, in the Gold Coast, which is the nearby um, holiday resort area near Brisbane where mm-hmm. I live, there's a lot of uh, Russian mafioso there, but we understand that they're actually just buying property and they've created a, a safe haven. They said it's a safe place where people can take their families and no one's allowed to shoot at each other. So it's sort of, they're safe 
uh, holiday zone where they can leave all their worries behind. But um, there's still a lot of suspicion that they're carrying things on. But it, you know, it could well be much more similar to your Rome example than the Piedmontese example. Yes, no, and, and, and yes, and I think they should be looked at different kinds of behavior. Mm. Now, um, I should also add, as a scholar of Russia, that there is a tendency to label all Russians as mafiosi. Mm. Um, yep. There was another case I studied in great detail, in, again, in, um, thinking that it might be relevant to my story, and then it turned out not to be, about um, lots of Russians uh, investing money in, uh, in the Emilia region, nearby Bologna and Rimini. And so there was an investigation done by the, by the judiciary in Italy into very funny transfers of money from Moscow to Italy to buy goods. So the prosecutor's hypothesis was that this was money coming from the Russian mafia. Then when they looked into it very carefully, it turns out these were actually legitimate businessmen who were yes. buying goods that they needed for their companies and for their industries, for their um, companies back in, in Russia. However, in order to avoid paying taxes and not mm. to be victims of tax uh, extractions in Russia, they used the very you know, roundabout ways to get the money to Italy and pay their suppliers. So that is not the Russian mafia. This is a country where there is a lot of predatory taxation that businessmen have then a tendency to leave the official economy, operate in the grey economy, and so then they are forced to use roundabout ways to pay their, their suppliers. Now, of course, Russia should really change that uh, way of, of taxing its entrepreneurs and make them all uh, willing to pay taxes and, and become legal. But again, so the first point I would make about the story you just told me is that it may not be that they're all Russian mafiosi. That's the oh, first absolutely point. not. No, I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that. No, <laughs> no but... Nope. Sorry, we've got a slight break in communication, I think. I can hear you. Oh, right, okay. Keep um, going then, yeah, that's fine. The, the first point is they might not be Russian mafiosi. The second point is actually they might be, they might be. And the, the challenge there is make sure that um, there is a good, uh, you know, anti-money laundering uh, regime and banks uh, should uh, do due diligence checks on uh, the money coming into the economy. Uh, well, actually, let's go to another part of the world then. Uh, the other chapter in your book is actually about how... The Sicilian mafia succeeded in the United States, and then they didn't succeed in the other, the South American continent. Yes, yes. So, as I said, the book uh, sort of proceeds in that way of matched comparison, and I have a historical chapter, and that chapter is about the Sicilian mafia this time, and how they uh, set up shop and migrated and created what is probably the most famous mafia in the world. No offense to all the other mafias. <laughs> the Italian-American mafia in New York City, the five families, the Gambino, etc. So this is probably the most famous mafia that we have in the world. However, literally, no, nobody has ever mentioned that right at the same time, when there was migration from the south of Italy, especially from Sicily to New York City, and when the Sicilian mafia was setting up shop in New York City, Almost identical patterns of migration were occurring in Latin America, especially in a city called Rosario, which is the one I studied in greater detail, where as many Sicilians had arrived as in New York City. And yet, no uh, Rosario Mafia has emerged, although it, it tried, and so it's now a little chapter in local history of the attempt of a mafia to emerge, but it failed. And so, 
I'm, in a sense, just to go back to the issues of comparisons, the story of the Rosario Mafia in itself would be quite insignificant if you, if you think about it. But then it becomes very relevant only when it's compared to, to, co to one where it succeeded. So it's only through comparison that what would be a local history chapter, a chapter of the Rosario City, becomes interesting more generally for criminologists and sociologists. So that's the story. And again, what happens in New York City at the time of the presence of the Sicilian Mafia um, is exactly what happened in Piedmont. There was a time in which um, uh, the local markets were badly managed and badly organized by the uh, official uh, institutions. And so what the mafia did in, it, in New York City is to step in and organize cartels and reduce competition for many shopkeepers. And then prohibition hits, prohibition hits. And of course, the mafia is there already present, able to organize a illegal market, where by definition the state cannot be there. And that talk about a massive transformation in the local economy. You know, the money was so big. But what the mafia did in, in Prohibition, and as I show in the book, is not simply to sell booze. It's not that they were just, you know, on the streets of New York selling bottles of, of, uh, of whiskey. What they did was to create uh, places where sellers and buyers of, um, of um, alcohol could meet. So they provided a very useful service to those operating in the illegal economy. These were called curb exchanges, like a stock exchange in a sense. And so what they organized was for these people to meet, to trade, uh, all virtually because there was no booze at that trading point. So when the police raided this place, there was nothing to, 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 to confiscate and the booze was kept outside New York. And then when, once the seller and buyer had agreed on a price, the, the, the alcohol would be shipped and the money would exchange hands. And what the mafia did was to control that the things were, worked out fine and nobody cheated. So, my general point about these organizations that I study is that they do provide a service. They are not pure predatory uh, groups. They are not simply thieves, or they're not even simply pushers of drugs or sellers of alcohol. What they do is they provide a service that um, helps both, you know, both sides of the equation. Um, yep. In this case, buyers and sellers of alcohol. But of course, the end result is that this is an organization that doesn't. Uh, uh, abide uh, the law or doesn't enforce uh, human rights and so ultimately it's a dreadful thing to have the mafia but the problem the reason why mafias thrive i think is because they're not just predatory no no so the social network analysis people would say they were brokers in that situation they were brokering between the purchasers and the sellers so they were providing and uh, uh, they were helping the illicit economy by being brokers in that economy. Yes, I, I have a great interest in social network analysis, and actually, believe it or not, uh, on the Russian mafia data, I had done network analysis, which is, hmm. but it didn't fit into the book. So I've now published separate papers, which I can yes, tell I've you about. Yes, I've read that. Actually, I have been reading those. <laughs> ah, great, thanks. That's fantastic. So, so I agree. I mean, they could be called brokers, but I would add that they are brokers with the enforcement power. So yeah. they are brokers with the ability to use violence. So they are not just uh, putting people in touch with each other, but they are ultimately able to enforce the deal. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of work by other people and other ethnologists, especially about um, underworld economies and the need for people to fill that role, both as enforcers and brokers and arbitrators between groups. Well, yes, I mean, I... 
obviously the work that uh, inspired me in many ways and I dialogue with is the work by Diego Gambetta who has written on the Sicilian Mafia yes. and has made points on this and so my book uh, is uh, different and similar in many ways to that book mm. yes definitely definitely so I suppose we've been over the major groups in the book, so where do we go from here? What, what are your big lessons for people in the field of uh, organized crime theory and even for the policing agencies who are looking at organized crime groups? What should they learn from your book? Well, um, so I, I think there are a few lessons they can learn. One is what I told you before, that this, distinction, this, this concept of uh, transnational organized crime is very too vague, really. We should look into what they do and we should distinguish. We should distinguish between money laundering, attempts to invest money in the legal economy simply to make money out of it from control of the territory. So that's the first lesson, the theoretical distinction that is very important. Second, the lesson is that when there is a transformation in the local economy, when there is a local, even in the local small valley or in a city, there is a boom, some sort of a new building, new construction sites, um, and the state is not quick to govern competition, is not quick to ensure that the market economy follows certain rules, and there is the presence of people used and trained in the use of violence, they could step in and do the job of the state. Mm. So in a sense, what I'm saying is that the market economy is not a natural phenomenon. It's not that it's self-regulating. That's a mm. big lesson that we, know, we knew from great uh, sociologists and like Max Weber, I suppose. But applied to this story, it tells us that the market economy is not self-regulating. You need a state that regulates competition and especially allows competitions to be there. When the state doesn't do that, Entrepreneurs can become, can use violence and can use uh, people trying to use violence like mafiosi to rig the, the game and uh, enforce cartel agreements. And the final lesson is that, and that's really in a sense the most worrying aspect of the people I study, is that they intercept a genuine demand for mm. regulation in the local economy. So that's why I find it so difficult to, find the ma to fight the mafia in Italy, because some people actually benefit a big deal from their presence. And so until you, we break the connection and the relationship between legitimate entrepreneurs on the one hand and mafiosi, then it's very hard to fight it. And these legitimate entrepreneurs, of course, have no concern for the damage they do to society, at least those who go to bed with the mafia. Yeah, and it's very hard. I mean, if we're going to have an illicit economy and they can't go to legitimate um, government agencies to seek those roles of protection and, and arbitration, then effectively we're always going to have this need for somebody to provide that service. I agree, I agree. And that's why we should be very careful when we make something illegal because whenever something is made illegal, we develop a demand for mm. control of that market. Now, um, this could go several ways, this line of argument. Uh, obviously, some people would then argue for drugs to be made legal because that would at least mm. take away a major, a major uh, demand of, of services of regulation. But of course, uh, ultimately, there will be always something that we consider to be legal. We cannot yes. allow the, the organs uh, market to be legal. We cannot even... And I tell you about another market which is very important, which is illegal, and it's the market for votes. If yeah. you think about it, the moment we have a democracy, we open up a market 
which is illegal, namely trading votes for money, right? That's mm-hmm. illegal under many laws. And of course, we're not saying, well, then we should allow people to exchange money and vote, or we should not have democracy. But the moment we make something illegal, we always create this scope for a demand for illegal services. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to be very careful when we make something illegal. I still think that something has to be made illegal, so we cannot allow votes to be sold and bought. We cannot allow certain markets like trades in organs to be. So we have to focus on those markets and make sure that where well, we fight the mafia in those markets, and when we do fight the mafia in those markets, we might have unintended consequences, namely that there is more drugs on the street yeah. as opposed to less if we fight the yeah. mafia. Um, so that's that's uh, my yeah that's that's uh, my answer to your question. Yeah, so it's what the policy people call a wicked problem. There's there's no perfectly balanced answer waiting out there that we just need to find. There's always going to be when we try and control the organized crime, we can't do it by making everything legal because there are some yeah. things we can't have as legal. So we actually run this as a seminar, a, a tutorial exercise for my students where we do, uh-huh. should we legalize drugs? And they start off saying, yes, let's legalize everything. And when we run through all the consequences, like you were saying, they tend to always answer that, well, we'll allow people to use marijuana at home. And they don't want children using PCP or crack on the streets, for example. So they always yeah. find that, that something has to be illegal. Yes, um, yes, exactly. So I totally agree on that. So that's a political issue that we, we would have to discuss under sort of political theory or, mm. or normative uh, criminology, if you wish, not under yes. positive criminology, which is what I do. Um, but the other point I wanted to make, and I, I think it's a big lesson about the presence of the mafia in legal markets, and I think it's a good, interesting policy lesson, is the following. When we look at the presence of the mafia in legal markets, they're not in every legal market. It's not that the mafia is present in every single legal market. It's present, present mainly in markets that are very localized and easy to control. So that's why we inevitably find the mafia present in construction. In construction... In, in Italy, they are very much present in excavation services that are useful for construction. So we shouldn't uh, think that the mafia is bound to take over all aspects of the legal economy. And clearly, we have to prevent the mafia from entering the legal economy. And we can do a lot by having an efficient state that regulates the legal economy. But we also can focus and zoom into some markets where we expect the mafia to be there, as opposed to other markets, which are very, very hard for the mafia to to control. Imagine the currently travel agencies. You know, I can yeah. have a travel agency uh, set up shop in a street. Then the mafia comes around and wants to extort money from me. What I can do is simply to go on online. And so yeah. the mafia would find it very hard then to extort money from me because they don't know where I am. So it's not that every single business or high-tech, high-tech computer services, they don't seem to be extorted by the mafia, while construction, small corner shops are much more a danger of mafia uh, extortion. So that's where we have to focus on to make sure that these shops are protected against the mafia. So it's not that the mafia is everywhere in the legal economy. Right, right. So um, our, our normal follow-up question here, our final question is, so what are you actually working on now? What's the next thing that you're going to be writing about? Well, thank you for your question. You might have noticed that I, it takes me 10 years to do a book. <laughs> so my first book took me 10 years. 
the, the next book, which is the one that I'm talking about, took me 10 years. So I expect <laughs> the next one to take as long, uh, also given my other commitments, uh, like teaching and, and so on. So the next question I ask myself is the following. And now, I, I know what the mafia does in a given territory, right? They control... Um, the, and in a sense, they operate as a third-party enforcement enforcer of deals. That's what they do. So in a sense, they're a state function, ultimately. But what happens when you have a mafia, say, in Calabria, a group in Calabria, and a group in, uh, in Colombia, let's say, and they want to trade, right? There you, don't, you cannot invoke a super third grand mafia, global mafia, that would settle disputes between the two groups if, if mm. things go wrong. So my next project is to study, you know, to put it in a, in a simple way, to study trafficking, ultimately, drug trafficking and human smuggling and human trafficking. But one, what I'm particularly interested in is not so much to, to, to quantify how big is that market, how many people get trafficked, how much drugs um, is uh, trafficked in the world, but really how groups uh, settle disputes in the absence of a mafia that can help them do that. That's my next project. Excellent. Oh, that'd be very interesting. I'm amazed at how you get your data. You've been very, very uh, lucky, I think, and also um, very astute in how you find information and what information you use, even in the book that we're talking about now. Uh, for anyone who reads the book, they'll see tables of data and statistics on, for example, how many business contracts were awarded in particular areas in construction. Yes, so obviously the, the biggest challenge for people like me is to find data. Data don't come easy. My first book was based on an ethnography in Russia, so I spent a year in that town in Russia interviewing businessmen. And, uh, and so it, took, it was a very big investment. That's why it took me 10 years between mm. the beginning and the end. It was a very big personal and uh, you know, emotional investment in that town. And so it didn't come out easy, the data don't come out easy in hmm. that case. And I, uh, yes, and then I also had quantitative data, I had historical data from my first book, I did archival work, and so it was a, a long process. And similarly for this book, I did uh, interviews, and then I, I look at uh, official documents, migration data, and judicial evidence. So... Yeah, data don't come easy, and in a sense, it's the biggest challenge for us. That's, I think, also why our particular field, the study of organized crime, is a mixed bag in terms of what is published, because it's not as easy to get good data as it is in other aspects of sociology, no. other domains of sociology. So, so it's a. So I'm not. I'm not suggesting people should study organized crime because <laughs> it's you do, and if you want to do it well, it it takes a lot of work and. It um, does. But once you really zoom in and you interview the people and you look at the original documents, you find that uh, the story is not as often what shows up in the newspapers. No, no. And then finally, I have to ask, uh, you've won an award for the book, so what was the award? Uh, yes, I'm very pleased. The book won the Outstanding Publication of the Year Award, which is given by the International Association for the Study of Organized Crime. So there oh, will I be saw. A, yes. yes, so there will be a, a, an event at, in Chicago at the American Society of Criminology Conference. So that will give me my opportunity to give my Hollywood acceptance speech. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, I, I will be in the audience that night, and I'll be clapping 
when you give your speech. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, look, thank you very, very much for the interview. I, as I said, I highly recommend the book to anyone who wants to read it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'd actually be using it as a guide to uh, future PhD students to how to structure a book and how to, how to find the peripheral information they can use to back up their stories and a good research method, the comparative method of data. So uh, thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. You have been listening to Federico Varese talk about his new book, Mafias on the Move, How Organized Crime Conquers New Territories, on the New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.